G'day everybody, this is Tractor and welcome to the Joel Ball Podcast. Today we're going to talk about a topic that's very close to my heart and that's the definition of the word milsim. Um, And I'm not trying to take hostage the use of that word, but when I say milsim or I say eastern predator, I need to get a very concise message across to the people that are coming so that they understand when I say milsim exactly the connotations and the burdens that are required before you come to Eastern Predator. A lot of people underestimate the preparation that they need for EP, and it was highly apparent at the first one. If you want to know a bit more about Eastern Predator and all the people that came to the last one, please jump on our Discord. I'll put a link in the show notes so that you can just jump on and hear what you need to hear from the people in the community, and you can get that two-way feedback. Please join in the discussion. We have a vibrant community. We have some very passionate people on both the red and the blue sides, so to speak, and they all have equally important points of view. The thing I love about our Discord at the moment is that people can disagree and do so civilly. It's fantastic to see people with different points of view say, yeah, let's meet in the mid-ground. Anyway... Let's move on to the first thing that I want to talk about for Eastern Predator. So these are in no specific order. I've just got a list. Basically, I went to Discord and said, okay, when I talk to you guys about Milsim and girls, what is it that sets Milsim apart from a skirmish or a normal game? So these are all the things that sort of came up. And as I said, no specific order. So the first one is the military setting and an immersion in a military way of doing things. So whether that's getting dressed up in a very specific uniform and being a team of very specific players that works together and trains together, it's about representing yourself as if you were in the military, suspending disbelief for a moment and trying to do things in the exact way the military would do them. And there's lots of aspects to that, from uniforms to what weapons you carry to uh, what we used to call LOAC or Law of Armed Conflict or ROE or Rules of Engagement as they're called now. So you might have restrictions on who you can fire on and when you can fire on them. That, That would never happen in a skirmish. You wouldn't be told, well, that guy hasn't threatened you enough so you can't shoot at them. That's the sort of nuanced difference between a milsim and a skirmish. So the next concept is is that of a chain of command. If you're playing a fairly regular style of game, you don't have a squad leader for every couple of people or a brick commander every few people or whatever it is that the tactics and doctrine that you're using represent. And that person above them doesn't have a platoon leader and then you don't have a company commander above that. So you have people making both tactical and strategic level decisions about when you get to pull the trigger or when you get to do things or how you navigate from point to point, which is a very different focus from that individualistic play where it's team A at one end, team B at the other end, whistle blows, everyone goes at it. You have this quid pro quo, there's you get something different from that type of experience than from just running at each other. The next aspect I want to talk about is one that 
a lot of mill sims don't really do, but I think it, it's an integral part of what Eastern Predator is, and that is the live-action role-playing that we include. If um, you were at the first Eastern Predator, you will have seen a very small snippet of that, and before EP, we talked about characters like Dimitri and the, and the Mayor of Redfall and stuff like that, and we want to take that to a whole new level on the next EP. So we're going to need some people that have got the right skills and can act within a left and right of arc and do certain things in the community that may not result in trigger time. But they are going to increase the amount of immersion for players. So maybe if it's your first Milsim, but you've done LARP or D&D or board games where you have to act a little bit, it's your, your way of dipping your toes into the water at Eastern Predator by coming and being part of that group. You mightn't be the lead character, but you might be their offsider or their driver or, or whatever else. And the thing about role-playing in this scenario is it increases your ability to immerse yourself in the world of Astana you will feel like you are interacting with real people and making real decisions that have what we call persistent effect. And that's the next thing I want to talk So that next concept is persistent effect. So one example I can give you very quickly of that is the money that we have in our universe. We minted 3,000 one Razu coins. And they are a coin. They feel like a coin in your hand. They've got relief. And we handed out between 8 to 12 of those per player, depending on various things, at the start of EP1. Those coins come back to EP2 in your pocket. Your player keeps those as if they just step back into Astana. If anyone's ever played D&D, just because you pause the game and you have three or four weeks in between it, your character remains the same. It has the same attributes. If you had a horse, you still have a horse. That sort of persistent, ongoing story. And the next level of that is that there are certain events in EP1. For example, Mayor Baroden was um, captured at the end because he'd done certain things. So there are characters that are going to act in a certain way based on what Mayor Baroden did. Dimitri, the arms dealer, got killed during a battle. So any of our yellow force or role players, if they die, they don't get to respawn. And that's something people don't didn't really understand at EP1, is that if you killed Cormac or Morkai or, or any of those key yellow or white team players, they die forever. And that persistence of your actions can have a massive roll-on effect to the next EP. So it changes the way you play because it will alter the history and the future of your game. The next concept is something I've harped on about a lot, and that's the no-break. If you have a soldier that was in Vietnam in 1970 and went out on a patrol, just because they were asleep didn't mean the Viet Cong would not attack them. And the same is absolutely true at Eastern Predator. At EP2, there will be no FOB. And for those that don't know what an FOB is, that's a forward operating base. That's a, a protected, safe place for you to 
reach out from and go back to 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 rest and recuperate. The next one is going to be a highly mobile operation. So wherever you decide to rest, somebody will need to be on sentry duty. Somebody will need to be on a listening post. You will need to put claymore mines or detection devices out to make sure that you don't get blasted because if you do, you then have to go through all that respawn process. And that won't happen at an FOB. That'll happen at what we now call a FARP. And a FARP is a forward arming and resupply point, which is a play on the word FARP from aviation, which is a forward arming and refueling point. So multiple FARPs will be in the area of operations and they're a contestable thing and we've got a whole bunch of rules that'll go around that. But that, again, is not a safe place. Just because the FARP is there doesn't mean it's safe to go into. So if you're thinking about the difference between this sort of no-break play and a normal day's play or a paintball game where you skirmish for a bit and then have a rest and a coke and a smoke and a smile. It's very different. You've got to treat it more like a marathon. You can't sprint for the first couple of hours of the game because you'll crash. Um, and we saw that with some people at EP1. They left early because they'd spent all of their energy in the first day or so and they had nothing left to, to give to the game or to get back from the game. So you have to think about, okay, we're going to go on patrol now for the next two hours and we're going to go up this hill and down this dale and around this mountain. Your team leader has to think about the ongoing consequences of that because they can't give you a four-hour sleep. They can't go, all right, we're just going to take our glasses off and, and have an actual rest. We're just going to step outside the boundary now. We call that meta-knowledge. You can't do that without breaking immersion. And, and it's not about breaking immersion for you necessarily. It's for the break of immersion for everyone else in the game when they go, what, well, I can't engage with that unit I've just been chasing. So no break is a really important aspect from the time you step off until the designated finish time of a milsim. That leads me on to immersion. So I think base was the guy that that put it the best way I'm able to explain is that for 90% of the time you feel like you're at war and doing war stuff and, and whatever else you're doing. The thing that actually breaks that immersion is the second you pull the trigger and only a gel ball comes out and you go, oh. And that's what we mean by immersion. It's about, if you think in terms of like uh, virtual reality, that's when you've got the goggles on, you've forgotten about the room that you're in, you're only seeing what's in the game. The same can happen when you fully immerse yourself into your character, into the story, into the milsim. So immersion is a really important point because if everyone's immersed and they've forgotten about their real life, it's, it becomes a really enjoyable break from reality. At an event like EP, you're going to have some rigid rules that not everyone agrees with, but they're there so that you have a balance or a mirror image of what you do. So in EP1, we had the coalition and their mirror image was the militia. And there was things that the militia could do that the coalition couldn't. And there were things that the coalition could do that the militia couldn't. And one example of that is call in mortars. 
And the counterpoint to that was that the militia could plant bombs and do sabotage and hide in plain sight. If the militia were walking around and didn't have a blaster openly displayed, the coalition were not able to do anything because they were not, in inverted commas, a threat to the safety of Astana. So these are what I talk about when there has to be a balanced mirror image on both sides. And you'll hear some players talking about, well, this this shouldn't happen here and this shouldn't happen there because in the real world this happens or because when um, this guy was in Kazakhstan in 1995, blah, blah, blah. We have to take those rules and bend those histories and bend them a bit so that there's a 50-50 on red and blue so that red can do certain things and blue can do certain things and they complement and balance each other out so that it's not a one-way fight. We've got to have both red and blue walk into there and not know, as the admin team, who's going to walk out victorious because both has advantages but both has disadvantages. They're just different sides. It doesn't actually matter which side you go on. And there'll be some more options that Morkai will talk about that in the Discord channels about. But what it does mean is that you operate a certain way. And again, I'll throw back a D&D reference here. If you're lawful good, you act a certain way. If you're chaotic evil, you act a certain way. That doesn't mean it is who you are. It just means it's who your character during this EP is. And I think a few people get wrapped up around the idea of, well, my ethics or my morals or my behaviour is this, therefore I have to play that. It's really fun to go, well, this is something I'd never do. Let's have a crack at the opposite. I'm going to throw back to something that I had a lot of experience with when I was a kid, and that was the Choose Your Own Adventure books. Um, and there's there's been stuff on Netflix and various other things and a lot of the games nowadays you get to choose how the story goes if you look at Fallout or some of those games when you get to certain critical events you make choices and that shapes the game and EP is the same for down to the sort of the squad leader level squad leaders get to make decisions because the EP storyline is not linear. If you think back to computer games in the 90s, you basically followed a breadcrumb trail and that got you where you needed to be and you couldn't really explore off to the sides. Whereas now if you look at games like Fallout, it's all about the side missions or the DLC that takes you off on a five-hour adventure in some totally different direction that doesn't... um, mean that the end of the game is there it means you get to explore more so when we plan ep we don't plan a do mission a mission a leads to mission b mission b leads to mission c we plan if you imagine the base of a tree you've got the roots of the tree and that's where we start everything leads into ep and then you've got the trunk of the tree and then it branches out in multiple directions some of those lead back to each other it's, it's a bit more like sort of an octopus with its arms all over the place. But the idea is that when a squad leader comes across a problem or a mission, they go, well, this is how I'm going to tackle it, and it goes off in its own direction. For anyone that's ever 
been a DM in D&D, which is a dungeon master in Dungeons and Dragons, for those that don't know, player characters are notorious for you planning this thing out, you're going to go through here and battle this and do that and blah, 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 and then you'll find the... And as soon as you put players in the mix, they go, oh, what's this door over here? And they go off on this little side tangent. And some DMs get really frustrated with that. But that was the thing that I loved about D&D in that you weren't tied into something. You could just, oh, well, that's what I'm going to do. Let's go off and have the adventure. So that's what we mean about storyline and choice is that you can go, oh, well, this is the thing that I want to do. So the next subject that came up in the Discord and a few other discussions I had with people is lore. And we spell that L-O-R-E, and some places they call it canon. So, for example, if you... And I'll use this example. Everyone knows the, the MCU is the Marvel Cinematic Universe and that each story led to the next. And things that happened in future films were affected by what happened in the past. These are what I like to refer to as the Franz Ferdinand moments of our story. And if you are serious about Milsim and you don't know what Franz Ferdinand is or about any of the things that led up to that or what it led to, it was the bullet that started a war, if you will. Um, and, And that's what happens in some of these EPs. And if you look back at the videos that we did leading up you would see the escalation of events and you you could start getting wrapped up and excited about what was going to happen because you knew oh this thing had happened so that's going to affect the gameplay this way and that's something in a regular everyday game and that this is why we only do EP so often because it takes a lot of effort to develop this stuff it'd be great to have three EPs a year but imagine how quickly the storyline would change between them. And if you missed one, and oh, it'd be an absolute nightmare. But a milsim needs to have a backstory. You don't go to war with somebody just because a general chooses to. A politician makes that decision. A president, a premier, somebody else makes the decision to deploy forces that is outside the military. The US is slightly different to that with the whole commander-in-chief concept of the president. He can just go, yeah, we're doing this, go and bomb that place. But most democratic countries, there has to be an agreement that, yeah, we need to go and fight this person. So the next thing on my non-sequential and not well-flowing list is leaders leading the choices of teams' actions. So... The thing that a squad leader or a brick leader or a section commander or whatever country you are, the leader of that small group, the cell, whatever it is, they get to make choices about the actions of a group of people. So a militia cell might decide, okay, coalition is starting to do these things, so we need to change their logistic support and if we change their logistic support it'll have ongoing consequences if they can't get resupplied ammo they can't do this and da 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 and their choices that admin don't make their choices that are made at a tactical level um, those with the, the military experience in australia that the decisions made by a corporal not by a captain if you know what i mean so 
it's, it's at that very tactical level that those decisions are made. We then also have strategic decisions made by your faction commanders. And if I'm going to draw this back to a military parlance, it's that these are the decisions that either your platoon commander or company commander are making because of the orders he's been given from above or she's been given from above and the tactical decisions that the troops under them have made and where they're situated in the battle space. So one of the great things about being that platoon commander, platoon sergeant level, that warrant officer level, is the battlefield situational awareness that you need to have in order to allow your teams to make decisions on the fly when they hit uh, troops in contact or when they come across a vehicle or whatever else. They've already trained for it. You know what they're going to do in a given situation. So you can just say, okay, section A, go to this area, do the thing. You don't need to micromanage and get really involved in it. It's because it's more like playing chess. You're just getting the pieces into place for the action to happen at that at that sergeant to captain level. The next level above that is what we call the diplomatic level where people are puppeteering behind the strings. So there's multiple levels of decision-making being held by players. So if the local premier decides to do something, then both sides of the coin will react in different ways and deploy their troops differently, and some will be reactive and some will be proactive. Some will be a knee-jerk because something has happened, and some will go, all right, I need to protect this area, so Group A, go to this place, make it safe. Group B, that road there... I need that road to be free of any enemy movements um, and that road over there, I need you to put mines on so blah, blah, blah can happen. And it's not always apparent if you're that corporal level, that squad commander, that what you're doing is a piece in the jigsaw. And sometimes you have to sell it to the troops below you. We're doing this thing, this task seems to really suck, but guess what? We're just a cog in the wheel. We are the anti-reverse latch in our blaster. If this doesn't happen, nothing else happens. Um, so sometimes you'll do missions in a milsim that you just go, oh, this is going to be as boring as, but it's really essential to gameplay and immersion and lore and all those other things that we talked about. So some people are really suited to just being a player. Some people want to be team leaders. Some people want to be platoon commanders and one of the new things you're going to find out soon enough is that the faction commanders as they existed in NEP1 will not exist each faction will be led by a paid player and they will make those decisions we haven't decided how to choose that player because we're going to have to be involved in it because they're going to have to have certain skills but the admin element that guides you is a platoon sergeant or a company sergeant major. And each side will have one of those based on the amount of troops that we have. And they sit below the platoon commander. A platoon sergeant doesn't command unless the platoon commander's been killed. He is there or she is there to make stuff happen. So if you look at it in the reality of EP, 
if you're in your platoon harbour and everyone's there together, the platoon commander can turn to the platoon sergeant and say, I want to do this operation. I want to send these guys over here and over there and I want to do it this way. What do you think? And the platoon sergeant's that crusty old guy that's always been around forever. Um, and in our terms, he'll have some admin experience under his belt and go, well, if you do it this way, this will be good. Um, to comply with that rule, you need to do it a little bit differently. So it's that preventative ability to bounce ideas off somebody before you go and try and play it out so that players get a better experience. But it also means that the players have more control over what they do. That platoon sergeant is a guiding hand, not a command of this thing type um, responsibility. So think of them like your leading hand at a job. They're not actually the boss they're just really good at what they do and they know the ins and outs of things so the boss will go to the leading hand and say oh can we um change manufacturing by including this new process and the leading hand will go oh yeah that's a really great idea or yeah we can do that but this thing will get in the way and that's that's the sort of role that the platoon sergeant will have is oh yeah yeah we can do that but just make this slight modification so they will be uh, like a command asset, and I think we'll make them not killable. Um, I don't even know if we'll put them in a uniform because you'll need access to them throughout the game. And I want to physically embed them in wherever your headquarters is out in the field. I don't want them in the TOC. I want them on the ground living with you. So having that should be an asset to enhance your gameplay. The last thing I want to talk about is a bit of a double barrel. Um, I can't see these two being talked about without talking about each other. They're inextricably linked. And the first one that came up in Discord was the preparation required before a milsim. And then the next one was the rule set. And you can't prepare without knowing the rules. And you can't know the rules without starting to prepare. So I see them as codependent upon each other. So our CSSOs are, I don't know, 10 or 15 pages. That's not a huge document. And what a lot of people don't understand that have never done military stuff is you have to do what's called positive interpretation. And the newest version of the CSSOs have got that paragraph in there. So if you look at the Army Dress Manual for any nation, no Army Dress Manual says you cannot wear a pink tutu on parade. And the reason it's done that way is because if you have a manual that says everything you can't do, the thing would be the size of America. A manual needs to say, you can do this thing, you can do this thing, you can do this thing, these are the ways you do them, and if you have a problem, go to the boss, and the boss will tell you what to do. And that allows a military to operate much more efficiently because they know what they can do. And that's really important at that tactical level to go, well, I can do this thing or I can do that thing. Anything else? You'll note I just had a little jump at it because I got to be excited and dropped a few expletives there. So I had to edit that out. But you get the point in that there are certain things that you can do. And we've got a little caveat in the CSSOs. If in doubt, ask before you do. 
because if you ask us before we do, it's not about us knowing and then gaming the system to make it work the way we want. It's about the other side having a fair opportunity as well. There needs to be, and I talked about it before, that mirror image, that balance to a game. So think of us more like a rugby umpire. We're there to make sure that everyone follows the rules and that everyone plays within the rules and it's done fairly and if anyone breaks the rules, we yellow card them or red card them or whatever. And and that's the actual role of us as a white team or the admin team or the command team, whatever you want to call us this week. Our role is not to tell you how the story goes. Our aim is to enable you to play in an open sandbox environment and do as much as you want. For those of you that have been in the military, you're used to receiving orders and directions and being told what to do in very specific formats. Those of you that have been more senior in the military will talk about things like course of action and left and right of arc and vital critical points and and all that sort of stuff. It's a very different language because at the command level, you don't talk to people in the same way that you talk to them at the tactical level. So we're going to get, or I specifically, I'm going to be a lot more involved in the team commanders or squad commanders, whatever you want. Your group of 8 to 12 people, I don't care what you call them. I'm not fussed about, oh, this is Australia, you must call them a section. I don't care what you call them. But that group is going to have one person that has a direct access to me. And the reason to do that is so that they don't have a complex way of having to ask a question. They can turn to me on Discord or Facebook and say, hey, Trav, want to do things this way? Is that okay? And I can go, like a platoon sergeant, I go, yeah, but can I balance it by letting the other team do this thing or that thing? And it allows the team leaders to train their teams. Yes, you're going to have to go out and train to do certain things a certain way. If you get tasked with doing a vehicle checkpoint or this or that or high-value target extraction or it doesn't matter what the mission is, you're going to be involved in how I plan the activity and I won't say you're going to go from this point to this point on a map and something will happen in between that. I'm going to go, you have this thing to achieve, go and do that thing. And I'm not going to get involved in the minutiae of it in the way that I would if I was a corporal giving an orders group and saying, okay, this is leg one of our nav and this is leg two and if we get bombed here, we're going to RV there and actions on ambush are and actions on if mortars come in and if we get split up and blah, 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 blah. I'm not going to be in that minutiae. I'm going to let the team, captains, commanders, whatever you want to call them, I'm going to let them give that level of orders to their own troops. And the way I talk to them will be very different to that. I'm not going to say your FOB is at grid one, two, three, four, five, six. I'm going to say that this is your area of operations. Select a platoon harbour. Tell me where it's going to be so that I can have transport deliver assets to it and blah, blah, blah. But in reality, it's so that I can plan your logistic support so I know how I can get water to you, how I, if there's an emergency, how I can get a car there and, and get people out. It's, it's that practical stuff that we talk about as meta-knowledge that I need to be able to get back. Like when I 
when I give the team commanders more control over what they do. There will also be faction leaders needed, and they need to act not like somebody getting trigger time. They need to act like a lieutenant or a captain. And what you see lieutenants and captains do in most movies is not how it rolls. Um, and the the glaring example sort of changes to that in modern culture are the movies Tears of the Sun and the movie Danger Close. They show more accurately how a, a team on operations works together and the different ways different roles do it. Um, if you watch most American movies about some special forces wonder guy, they're always a captain or a colonel or whatever else. Colonels don't get trigger time in the real world, man. Like, in the SAS, there's one colonel. There's not 55 colonels all going around doing special missions. That's all corporals and troopers. That's not how I have experienced the military. And it's not the reality of military operations in the real world. It's a very Hollywood-esque look at things. So think about if you want to be a faction commander, it's going to be a very different experience for you. It's going to be a challenge to your way of thinking, if you've played job a lot, in how you manoeuvre different pieces around a chessboard more than... I need to go over here and kill this guy, so I need to be there to do that. A lot of it will be done via the radio. You might be with a section that goes and does things, but you can't get so wrapped up in that task that you aren't commanding the other sections as well. So it's not a job for everyone, and that's the only reason that I'm going to have a bit of power of veto over who is the faction commander, because it needs to be somebody with a very specific skill set in how they deal with people and how they interact with people. I will probably choose people that have had a long line of milsim experience from the old combat sims world or people that have been at least a sergeant or at least a captain or equivalent in the real military because they understand a little bit better how to think strategically and less tactically. Hopefully there's some things that tell you more about the ethos of what a milsim is as opposed to the reality of what a milsim is, which is what I sort of covered in the last What is a Milsim podcast. I hope this has shed a bit of light on it for you. Again, if you've got any questions or ideas or something you want to talk about, bang me an email, tractor at milsimeast.com or jump on our Discord, which is 